Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. One resident describes her horrifying experience when she first realized the complex was on fire. I got bronchitis. Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time. Ain't nobody got time. Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time. Ain't nobody got time. Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. is Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 48 for November MMXII. Episode 48 is brought to you by this public service announcement. Hey, where's John? What's all the excitement? Wakanda! We can't find John! He was heading that way. Oh no. Check that old refrigerator! Condo. Remember, never get in anything that could close up and trap you. Like an old trunk or an abandoned refrigerator. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Backroll to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. 
Examples of the prices you may encounter are January's back row number 16 and birds of prey number 16 both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Well, happy Thanksgiving to you all. This is probably going to, well, this will come at you after Thanksgiving, so I hope that you had a great time with, with friends and family, and you had some good turkey and stuffing and cranberry sauce, all of those sorts of things, but I hope that you are also active and uh, hopefully not going into a turkey-induced coma and sort of getting out there to, to combat all, all of that, that heavy caloric intake. I had been trying to really get out there each day and go on a run to, to combat that and just be active. Uh, and right before Thanksgiving, I don't, it's been a while since this has happened in my recollection. I don't remember it happening the day before, but my birthday was the day before Thanksgiving. So that was exciting. Saw Skyfall, the new Bond movie, and I won't spoil anything, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, and it, it, it lends itself um, to really starting that Bond continuity that we see beginning with Sean Connery, which was great at the end of that. And had some, you know, Mediterranean food afterwards and got some some great gifts, got a pair of moose socks. Uh, I love moose. I don't know if I've ever talked about that. And I got the New Testament in Greek. So I'll have to get back, uh, put my Greek cap back on so I can start reading that. Uh, from a good friend of mine, I, I got the first two trades of Why the Last Man, and I'm I'm excited to read those. Uh, and it was just fun. It was just fun to be around friends and family. Oh, I also got a Frankenweenie plush, and you can move his tail and his legs, and a Frankenweenie mug as well, because I do like drinking tea. It was certainly a fun birthday, and it's just been a relaxing time. Been watching some some different things. Started Battlestar Galactica, not the 1978, but uh, the more recent version. And I really enjoyed the miniseries, so I think I'll continue on. And I've been reading lots of trades as well. Brought four trades. The first two of Young Avengers, which I absolutely loved. And then the first two of Avengers Academy. So just having, yeah, just relaxing, going on runs, watching some you know, TV and, and reading. And hopefully you are reading comics as well over this holiday and, and taking it easy. And now let's just dive into the vintage stock that we've got. So perhaps you read some of these. First up, we have Detective Comics number 484, The Race Against Murder. The cover date, June, July, 1979. Writer Jack C. Harris, penciler Bob Oskner, inker Vince Coletta, letterer Mike Stevens, and colorist Gene D'Angelo. Also seen in this issue are Assault on Olympus, which features Batman, the Who is Floyd Fenderman Anyway contract featuring Human Target, The Return of the Flying Graysons featuring none other than Robin, Terminus again featuring Robin, and Time, T-Y-M-E, has no secrets featuring Etrigan the Demon. This issue begins with Jim Gordon opening a letter addressed to the GCPD and discovering an odd wire. Moments later, his office explodes and Batgirl sees it all happen. She is the first one on the scene, and luckily Gordon is not dead. GCPD says that they will flash the bat signal, but Batgirl declares that this is her case. She first questions the messenger who brought the envelope. He explains that he runs a private service and got a call to pick up the envelope from the post office. The reconstructed envelope tells the police nothing, with no postmark and no return address. 
This investigation seems hopeless before it even starts. Batgirl knows as Congresswoman she has been threatened, but wonders if they would strike at her through her father. She decides to check the one man who has his crooked fingers in every racket and graft-grabbing politician in town, Ross Canton. Once there, she stakes out the apartment and listens in on a phone conversation telling someone, you can see it through, Gordon's at the hospital now. Batgirl believes she has stumbled upon the very plot and bursts in on him. She demands answers, but Ken declares he has the advantage as she is miles away from the hospital and there's no link between the assailant and himself. She leaves and taps into a special frequency, telling all units to protect the commish. When she arrives, the police are there and she bursts into the commish's room with the nurse there as well. Gordon insists that he is safe, and the nurse says that she's taking care of him and that Batgirl should leave. While on her way out, Batgirl realizes that no nurse would have noisy bracelets. While the nurse tries to run away, Batgirl rolls a stretcher at her and takes her out, bowling style. After finding out the commissioner's injections have been altered, she questions the nurse, and while she is willing to testify against Canton, he had nothing to do with the bomb. Apparently, the nurse was already at the hospital trying to steal some narcotics. In Jim's room, Babs explains that she came back to Gotham to discuss whether she should run for office again after all these threats because of her stand on the anti-crime bill. Her father states that it is not like her to back down in the face of threats, but she still wants to know whose enemies are targeting him when she suddenly realizes that there was no postage mark on the envelope, meaning the messenger was lying at the very beginning. Later, the messenger is packing up in order to leave, explaining that he swore he would get revenge on Gordon after he sent him to jail for 20 years when Gordon was a mere punk cop on the beat. But he fooled them all. Batgirl listens to all this in the doorway and takes him down, hoping that Canton and the messenger will share a cell. Gordon's don't back down to threats. Well, I guess the, the main lesson to learn from this is that the GCPD doesn't want to trust females uh, with the job of investigating since they kept insisting that they were going to light the bat signal even after Batgirl kept saying, this is my case, this is my case. Too bad Batman actually never comes, and this is even pointed out at one point and referenced just, you know, look at Batman's story in this particular issue. So that was kind of funny. I do wonder why Canton was the first person that Babs thought of when all of this went down. It seemed like an easy answer at the time. I feel like a bit more should have gone into this and, and revealed as to why she was thinking about this guy. She says that the investigation can't even get started because there would be so many people going for Gordon. And then all of a sudden she finds one person which actually leads to everything and makes the investigation open up. So it seemed... I, I don't know, she just backtracks and, and basically goes against what she originally said. It's also interesting that Batgirl thinks Canton is going to be in jail with the messenger since he was right that there's nothing to hold him on unless she did decide to record that conversation on the phone somehow. But, you know, I guess the nurse did say that she would testify, but of course, you know, who knows if that nurse lady's going to live after she says something like that. How convenient that the fake nurse wants to testify. Uh, here I thought she would have just said, you know, drop dead back or I'm not going to turn stooly, but I guess she will. If you remember that Super Best Friends Forever episode that focused on Batgirl and, you know, her friends call her and she has to make her way there and it takes her a long time because all of these things sort of go against her. Just things in the alleyway or like her bike getting messed, things like that. It's really weird that 
Um, just everything seems to go wrong for Babs in this particular story. And you know, the bridge that randomly opens up as she's crossing is just one example. I do wonder where Babs went to find the messenger because there's no indication as to where he is or how she found him. And I feel like this is a big hole. And I think that was the main problem with this, this story is that just things seem to happen or come to Batgirl and we don't really know how that happens. And I sort of like, you know, details that make everything fit together. Looking back on this issue, you can really see the, the creepy and sinister look that the messenger has in the beginning. And, you know, of course it has to be him. It's always the creepy guy. And what a reason to do it, because he was put in the slammer. You know, here I thought it was going to be some really great flashback to early in Gordon's career, but he's just sort of talking to himself, which, you know, no one but the bad guy really does that, and that's only for exposition purposes. Yeah, he was put in the slammer for 20 years, so there you go. You know, overall, I guess this was a good story. You don't know really until the end whether the killers are after Gordon because of Gordon or because of Babs, and I think that was the strongest point of the issue. And it's great because it goes back to the previous story where we saw that there is an issue between uh, Babs and some other politicians. It's a little convenient that Babs happens to be in Gotham when all of this goes down, but it's great to see that, you know, my question has been answered whether she's going to continue with her job. That was, you know, the pre previous podcasts and I thought well all these issues are, are they going to drop her as congresswoman but it seems like she is indeed going to continue it's interesting to see the possibility that Babs could have enemies not as Batgirl but as Barbara Gordon but I do wonder what type of politicians are these people that she's working with if she thinks that they would hire people so I mean why isn't she going after them I give it eight out of ten bats Next up, we have Detective Comics number 485, The Case of the Untouchable Crook, an August-September 1979 cover date. Writer Jack C. Harris, penciler Don Heck, inker John Celardo, or Calardo, letterer Ben Oda, and colorist Jerry Serpe. Also seen in this issue are The Vengeance Vow, featuring Batman, The Case of the Cavorting Corpse, featuring Robin, The Fatal Finale, wow, there's a lot of alliteration going on here, featuring Edric and the Demon, SST, The Supersonic Threat, featuring Man Bat and Jason Bard. And seriously, Vengeance Vow, V's, you got Case of the Cavorting Corpse, C's, Fatal, fatal Finale, those are those F's, and then Supersonic, oh my gosh. Ugh, I guess it was just an alliteration month, but Case of the Untouchable Crook, not the best, I don't know. She kind of, one of these things does not belong to the other, but anyways, let us get on with this. This story begins with Barbara Gordon dressed as Batgirl within her own apartment. She heard something and walks in on a burglar breaking into her safe and attempting to steal the file on Congressman Cartwright, the central figure in the Saranovan kickback investigation that Congresswoman Gordon is heading up. She ends up taking him out and tying him up, calling the police, then leaving the apartment, changing from her Batgirl guise and returning it as Babs so that it does not seem suspicious. Babs acts surprised that there are police in front of her apartment, and they explain that she was burglarized. Babs, with Congressman Roberts and Congresswoman Gerald, were having a late-night meeting together and follow Babs up to her apartment. The police tell them that the perp cannot be held because he's Anton Karyov, and he's with the Sarandian embassy. He has diplomatic immunity. The congressmen are upset because they thought they had a chance to prove Cartwright's connection to this scandal. 
Babs disappears and comes back as Batgirl in the apartment's sub-basement garage, zooming out the back of a specially constructed trunk on her bat cycle. She follows the official car, but Karyov shoots out her tires. After a last-minute line to a pole, Batgirl swings to safety, but her bike is not so lucky. Later at the Capitol building, Gordon is questioning Congressman Cartwright about voting Sarandia foreign aid, which they are now using to fund a nuclear project, and receiving kickbacks from that government. Cartwright argues that she has no evidence except that the country is beginning a nuclear quest, then shortly dismisses himself. She leaves the hearing, and while the reporters are distracted with someone else, she changes into Batgirl and follows Cartwright, which does not lead to a meeting with Karyov, as she originally believed. She believes that perhaps he is using a go-between. Back at her apartment, she hears a noise and turns into Babs to investigate, finding Gloria Mann, Cartwright's secretary. She has been the go-between in the affair, and she is getting scared and ready for it to stop. Gloria walks back to her apartment, and Becker keeps an eye on her. Hours later, Gloria appears to be nearing the location of the meet, which she wasn't supposed to be. Uh, Karyov pops out of an alleyway and spooks Gloria, giving her a case of money, the money promised to Cartwright. Gloria suddenly turns into Batgirl, and she goes after Karyov. The FBI arrive, and Karyov would sooner testify against Cartwright, against his own government, instead of being killed when home. This is fine by Congresswoman Gordon. Wow. Lots of uh, changeroos here. Well, you know, I do wonder whether Babs was, in the very beginning, whether Babs was in her apartment uh, when she heard the noise and then decided to change and investigate, or if she was on patrol and heard the burglar from the outside. This is a mere detail, but sort of a question that I had. Because how did he get in and not notice her? Sort of a good question. I'm glad to see that she's taking precautions in order to prevent people from learning her identity. Uh, So she ends up leaving her apartment and then coming back in as Babs. Diplomatic immunity, oh my word, it seems like the easiest and most annoying thing in the world. Why is it that even the crummiest people in the world get this? And you know, it, it happens here that, oh, I mean, these guys could do like these horrible things and you see it all the time in like Law and Order and Law and Order SVU that, you know, they do this terrible thing, but hey, guess what? They have diplomatic immunity, so they're going to go back home. And I just read Death in the Family for the first time and it was so loony to see Joker as an ambassador. I'm just thinking, what are you people doing? This guy is a lunatic and you have him, you're not arresting him or anything. Ugh. This issue shows us how Babs is able to turn her costume into ordinary street attire, which is something that we actually haven't seen for a while, I would say. About the bike, uh, Babs is pretty upset about the destruction of her bike, and she comments that it'll take her weeks to construct it. And it was interesting to learn that she probably built her own bike and will do it again without the help of Batman. And a little tidbit here, in the previous issue her bike was blue, but in this one the bike is red. So I do wonder if this she means uh, this means she has a couple of bikes, or had, I guess is the as the the case may be, since she doesn't have them anymore. So it was just interesting to sort of learn this side of her. And I do wonder where she gets the tools and the parts and where she got the know-how on bike repair. I like that this story goes on both sides of Babs's life. It, it doesn't really often happen that she has to fight as both Congresswoman and Batgirl, and I think that that was something that always made the Stephanie Brown Batgirl series so strong because you saw her as Batgirl, but you also saw her college life as well because it's great to know both characters. 
It's interesting to think that if the secretary never surfaced, all the bad guys would have just gotten away. I think this was another easy plot point, something that we saw in the previous issue. I mean, what was getting spooky and underhanded? These are the two words that she used, spooky and underhanded. Couldn't she have just waited it out? I feel like it was almost over. It was it was ready to be done. But all of a sudden, she comes in. I think the time would have been long past for her to come in and help. And why wasn't she implicated? Shouldn't she also be arrested with all of this as well? I mean, I don't think she'd get off with a slap on the wrist, but I'm, I'm sure that she'd get some time off, certainly, for helping out. I'm surprised Karyov would continue to try to get that money to Cartwright. Why not just take him out and leave? I mean, the congressman at this point is a liability, and I mean, since Karyov was basically, I mean... He should know by now that he was being tracked by Batgirl because she burst in on him and then followed his car. You'd think that the best chance would be to get away from the U.S. It's also a little strange that Karyov himself was the one to admit that while he cannot be prosecuted in the U.S., he will be killed in his own country. And I think this is something that usually comes from the cops. And then, of course, they just send him back anyway in order to get justice because if they can't get it here, they're just going to, I mean, he'll get his just desserts elsewhere. So that's sort of what happens on TV anyways. Uh, so it was just interesting to have Karyov actually sort of narrate that part for himself. The fact that he is willing to give up his country, basically, and become a traitor and tell them all these secrets rather than die is just an interesting turn of events. Another good story, even though there are some things that happen a little too easily, once again. And Karyov is a character who calls Batgirl Bat Demon, and then Babs, who happened to be dressed as Gloria, a stupid female. So, of course, he's a classy guy, don't you know? I give this uh, an equal 8 out of 10 bats. Well, that was the vintage section there. When I come back, I will review Batgirl number 13, the Batgirl annual number 1, Birds of Prey number 13, and World's Finest number 5. But first, we've got Zias's Radio Hour featuring The Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. See you soon. Hello darkness, my old friend I've come to talk with you again because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence In restless dreams I walked alone Streets of cobblestone, beneath the halo of a street lamp, I turn my collar to the cold and damp. When my eyes were stabbed by the flash of a neon light, split the night and touch the sound of silence. And in the naked light I saw Ten thousand people, maybe more People talking without speaking People hearing without listening People writing songs That voices never 
Welcome back. And man, this this modern half of this episode is really Batgirl heavy. Uh, but what's nice about this, if you listen to the BatmanUniverse.net, recently Dustin had this idea of switching formats. And the format is really great because it's new and it really changes who gets to really recap each of the issues. And then that same person we'll also come up with two or three discussion ideas and so we get to talk about these ideas rather than just going through our thoughts and then of course we give a grade so it really gives more discussion rather than sort of blandly going through things and you know what they think about everything which is of course I guess what I do so maybe I shouldn't say blandly but I like it also because now if you listen to the Batman universe and then if you come over here is not redundant and I'm going to be saying different things and maybe I'm not going to be recapping that particular issue so you'll hear a different recap over here so that's great that you know the the brother and sister site can sort of work together and and be different but complement each other as well but I definitely recommend giving it a listen I think it's really livened up the cast and uh, just you know great topics have been coming out and it's just fun to discuss in that way well, here we go. We've got Batgirl, the actual issue, and then the annual. So, and this is probably the first Batgirl annual that starred Babs Gordon. So, this will be, well, we'll have to see if it was a worthwhile annual or not. But first up, we actually have Batgirl number 13, A Blade of Memory. Writer Gail Simone, artist Ed Benes, and colorist Ulysses Ariola. We see Batgirl bleeding out from the stab wound she sustained from Nightfall, seeing rainbows and trying to stay awake. Nightfall tells her that the Bat family has let the city down and has let it choke to death slowly. Nightfall calls Bonebreaker to come and collect Batgirl, but Bonebreaker doesn't answer. It looks like Batwoman and McKenna are actually doing their jobs. While Nightfall is distracted, Batgirl manages to get up and attack Nightfall with all the strength she has in reserves. Meanwhile, James Jr. looks on within a monitor room. There's a break in the fight and Nightfall removes her mask to reveal, shocking, Charisse. She explains that the Karns family was practically royalty and she especially wanted to make her father proud, so she never gave up on anything. Later, she met Trevor, who didn't care about her family's money, but thought she would become unhappy because of it. 
Later, Trevor would show up and make Cherise watch while he took her family's skin off for kicks and giggles. That's a direct quote. Cherise did not bring this up at the trial because she knew Trevor could not pay for what he did if he were in prison. Trevor is, in fact, a decrepit body sitting in the cage in her apartment. So Cherise went to Arkham intentionally, not to rehabilitate, but to learn, to learn the craft of madness, to learn that Arkham has spilled out onto the streets of Gotham, and so she used her father's methods of getting money from crooked people and walked out of Arkham free, ready to fix and rule Gotham. Batgirl states that she will be leaving now and will be taking Ricky with her, and maybe Trevor as well. This does not sit well with Cherise, and she goes after Batgirl, clearly with the advantage now. Later, Ricky grabs her arm through the cage and holds her while Batgirl dishes out some much-needed whoop-you-know-what. Nightfall states that she owns every crooked cop and will be free soon enough, but it looks like McKenna is the right person to make the arrest. Nightfall continues saying that she will build an army, that she has security cameras, that she owns servers and databases, and she will tear Gotham apart. But Batgirl says she'll beat those two. Four hours later, Babs is checking out her wound, now stitched up by a friend of McKenna's. Alicia walks in and asks her about the new wounds and shows Babs a new cat, Alaska, and apparently Babs Sr. is on the phone. Mom says that there are men outside the door, and we suddenly see them burst in, wearing clown masks and sporting Hawaiian shirts, a camera, and weapons. Two days later, we see Mirror, Gretel, and Grotesque at their respective holding cells, each met by an individual member of the Disgraced, asking them to kill Batgirl after they are gotten out. Next issue, Batgirl's worst fear realized, the return of Joker. Okay, this issue, I'm going to just preface this, is is one of the better issues I think that we've had within this Nightfall storyline, so I will start off saying that. Now, the internal monologue coming from Batgirl about rainbows and barely staying conscious, it's slightly obnoxious. You guys all know how I just really rag on, on the, 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 the speech bubbles, basically, from Babs. But, uh, you know, I could take it more now than I could in the past. I did have to do a, a double take on the quote, I won't apologize, the tar pits don't apologize to dinosaurs. If you think about it, it does work well since the tar pits kill anything that gets trapped and practically help out evolution, as Nightfall is attempting to help out the evolution of Gotham. But still, some of these quotes, are, I, I don't know, just some of the wording is very, very awkward. I enjoyed Nightfall's monologue blaming the Bat family for the decline of Gotham. Not necessarily that I agree with it, but, you know, it, it loses me when they both start talking about looking into each other's eyes. Very kind of strange there. I'm really proud of Babs for finding the strength to fight and doing exceptionally well for someone who's actually wounded. And this is one of my pros for the issue. You know, it does call into question, however, how she's easily taken down in several other fights, but here she's really down, and all of a sudden she can pull herself up and, and dish out a lot of hurt. I do wonder what James Jr.'s doing. What are his motives? And this is something that I've been questioning all along. But why is he there? Why is he watching? Why did he help out Sharice? What are his end goals? Why is he nice to Elysia? These are all good questions, I think. I found Cherise's backstory more intriguing than the previous villains that we've had, Mirror and Gretel and Grotesque. Now, the part with Trevor seems a bit forced to me since it's really the only reason that she broke. And if he was so violent, I wonder why she decided to practically follow his path and become a violent character herself rather than, you know, following a lighter path, you know, like 
Batman had done. I like the fact that she went to Arkham on purpose, and that we actually do get some connection back to the guys in the cell in her apartment, so that those aren't just plot lines that were left unanswered. So I was happy about that. I'm glad Ricky did prove useful after all, and darn it if he doesn't seem like he may stay around for a while, which I guess I said that first time when he randomly ran through that couple's bedroom. I also like that this villain seems to have some everlasting qualities and even continues to throw out threats as the heroes walk away. The threats she used really make it seem like she will be a foe more dangerous than the previous one she has encountered if they are in fact true that really she has her fingers in every pie over Gotham and can really, I mean she's like brother eye the way she's talking about the servers and technology and things like that. Well, I'm so glad we got to see Alicia in her underwear. <sighs> Man. If Babs Sr. is so freaked out on the phone, why doesn't Alicia hurry to get the phone to Babs? No, she actually just sits there talking about the cat. That's like the most idiotic thing. Obviously, Babs Sr. is probably freaking out that there are men at her door trying to break her down, but hey, look at my cat. Oh, your mom's on the phone. Really? And I actually imagine Babs would have quickly realized that Alaska seemed familiar right away rather than delaying that reaction, I kind of envisioned. Because, I mean, that cat is really connected to something sinister and violent with her past. So I feel like that would have been a, a memory that would have flashed really quickly, sort of like the gun did to her in issue number one. I think the end, for me, was the best part of the issue. Not only with the clowns bursting in, but the disgrace visiting the previous villains and really setting something up. Perhaps they'll be more useful the second time around, because they certainly weren't the first. Though now Grotesque is fine without his mask, which, that's just idiotic to me. I never understood the whole mask thing in the first place when he was freaking out that, no, you can't see my face, but here he is. But, you know, I think for once a villain here was used properly and made Batgirl look good in the process. And she's got a sinister past, and I can actually go with this past. And, I mean, not necessarily, I can't really, like, care about her, sort of, will I ever say that she's going to be my favorite villain? Probably not. But I think in comparison to all the other villains that we have seen in this particular book, that Nightfall, in this particular issue, because I think it all came out now, is probably the best villain that we have seen. But the only thing we haven't learned within this story is McKenna's connection. That's the, a huge thread that has just been left ignored. And actually, I really like the cover, and I don't comment on these covers a lot, but I thought it was a cool cover, even in its simplicity. But, you know, the best Nightfall issue of this particular arc, and again, the villain, I think, is the best. Of course, we're going to start going into Death of the in the Family after this, but I wonder where this book will pick up after that. Will we get back to Nightfall, or will there be a delay, and then perhaps we'll get back later? Who knows? But I will actually give this 7 out of 10 bats. Next up, we have Batgirl Annual number 1, The Blood That Moves Us, writer Gail Simone, Art Admira Wijaya, pencils on pages 26 through 38, Daniel Sampera, and letter Desi Cienti. The slums of Gotham are on fire, and the arsons are being committed by homeless people. Batgirl is in one of the buildings, taking on a group of the arsonists, noting that there is someone behind it all, making the homeless people afraid enough to set the fires. In the middle of the fight, Batgirl hears the cry of a baby and tells the arsonist to get out, which they do. Batgirl saves a mother and her infant and bursts out of the building. All of this is watched by Catwoman, who, well, apparently doesn't like Batgirl. 
At the Harrowwood State Penitentiary, Commissioner Gordon is walking through the men's ward asking Sergeant Reeves about a particular inmate. Reeves calls her a dummy because she is mute, and Gordon becomes incensed at the derogative term. They enter the cell and see Mary, the town that Batgirl faced during the Night of the Owls. Gordon has little information on the Court of the Owls and asks Mary to help him from hurting others like herself. He gets her a box of crayons so that she could sketch what she knows, but he gets nowhere and leaves. Sergeant Reeves feels Mary embarrassed him in front of the commish, so he takes it out on her later. And later still, Catwoman opens her door and declares she is there to spring Mary. In the Gotham slums, a one-legged Ricky, oh boy, he's here again, meets up with Batgirl, who is looking for information on the slum fires. He says he cannot help, writes the word owls on the side of a trash can, and tells her to go before his brother shows up. Too late! But in order to keep Ricky safe, well, guess what? She pulls the old kiss the guy in the alley trick. Great for you. Back inside the prison cell, Catwoman tries to get Mary out, but she will not leave without her crayons. Reeves comes in and Mary attacks with full force. Catwoman stops her from killing him and they leave. Back with Batgirl, she nervously contemplates the word scrawled on the side of the dumpster since she thought all the surviving talents were imprisoned in Blackgate. She interrogates some homeless people in an alley and gives money to a homeless family and then a homeless man berates her for bothering them and tells her he knows whom she's looking for. Outside Harrowwood, Catwoman and Mary escape dressed in guard uniforms. Mary tells Catwoman her family is dead and she has no friends. Looks like Catwoman is her first one. They get into a conveniently located car. Beckerel is doing reconnaissance on Mr. Parsons, the man scaring the homeless into committing arson. She also hears over the scanner that the talent she faced has escaped from prison. Beckerel reflects on Mary's history as a talent herself and Catwoman appear at Mr. Parsons' penthouse. We learn that Parsons is going to put the blame of the arsons on Wayne, that he was doing it to remake his b- rebuilding of Gotham easier, sort of like a Nero burning Rome for his golden house sort of deal. Catwoman becomes incensed and backs out once she learns that innocence would be killed. Looks like Parsons is a member of the Court of Owls and sentences Catwoman to die, so Mary and a group of other talents attack. Batgirl bursts through the windows and they fight together. Now Catwoman's impressed with Batgirl. Things are going badly for both of them until Batgirl tells Mary that Parsons will burn innocence just like her family was burned. This puts Mary on their side and the tide changes in their favor. Parsons threatens to shoot Mary with a liquid nitrogen bullet, gets a call, states that he will not be a liability, but then kills himself. Catwoman tells Batgirl that she will take Mary in, but then decides to help in another way, by being a distraction to give Batgirl the time she needs to get Mary out of there. Catwoman goes out to meet the police, and Batgirl takes Mary, finding the irony that Mary both tried to kill and ended up saving her life, if only she knew her name. See the talent next in Birds of Prey number 14. Well, hopefully if you've been listening for a little bit, these fires, these these arsons may remind you of another storyline that I reviewed before. But remember in Batman Family, that Huntress story arc? And she was was fighting some arsons as well. Maybe Simone listens to BTO. A costume that looks more like the iconic version with the black and gold and no purple accents. This is something that I really picked up on. And someone brought to my attention that this had been before, but I, I, I feel like it really was more apparent in this particular issue and I actually just really love the way the art was this particular I think that the key thing is I don't understand like that's what you're going to hear a lot Uh, so number one I don't understand why the arsonists are geared up like bank robbers and carrying tools and weapons it's as if they knew there was going to be a fight but 
that seems a little too convenient. I, I feel like they would have just come to set a fire and then they would have left. So it would have been more realistic to have them in their street clothes. And I think it's also weird that the arsonists leave just after the baby cries, just because Batgirl tells them to. I mean, why not? If you're there and you've got your, your clubs and your hammers and stuff, why wouldn't you just not listen to what the hero is telling you and beat her up and leave her for dead and then get out of there? doesn't really seem like it to me. I also don't understand why Catwoman is observing Batgirl at that fire. Did Parsons tell her to do it? And why is Catwoman being hired by the court since she fought against the Talons during the Night of the Owls? Hello, inconsistency. My main issue with this annual is why it's revolving around the Court of Owls. Why are we bringing them back and why in this book? We've got, well, number one, we're going into something that's pretty big, Death in the Family. I feel like we should be setting up for that or at least have this annual focused on Batgirl. Court of the Owls, you know, they're not all gone, of course, but I feel like we can take a respite from it. And we've got a Talon book. Why not just deal with it there? When does this annual take place? Shouldn't Batgirl and the Commission be more concerned with James Jr. and Joker on the loose? We have Gordon getting righteously angry at the sergeant. The Talon, for some reason, not in Blackgate, which really isn't explained since all the other ones are there. And then Jim trying to help the Talon. And we certainly feel sympathetic towards her, um, or we felt sympathetic towards her when we last saw her. But now, apparently, we're really supposed to feel sorry for her. And I think that it was it was more organic the previous time that we saw her. Um, you know, she really reminded me of Cass, and at the end, you know, have Mass 2, all of that stuff. But then here it's like everything we're kind of throwing on all these sorts of sad tunes that oh look at poor Mary the Talon and really it's it's gotta it can't be forced like that you know the things it, it only works you know organically and and you know just accidentally you the reader making connections this is really the Mary show, you know, for this annual, pulling in Batgirl and Catwoman. And then we get to see Ricky again, because apparently he's going to be an informant for Batgirl. If he were an actual informant, that would be great. But he doesn't even help. He just scrawls owls on the side of a trash can that scratches out. Really? And then we get to see Batgirl lower her respect meter even more by randomly kissing Ricky why would this reduce the suspicion? This doesn't make sense to me at all. Wouldn't the brother be even more irate that Ricky is quote-unquote dating Batgirl? Really? Oh my gosh. She, you know, this is what I would have done. She should have hit Ricky and threatened him as a show of force. And I feel like that would have been more believable. And then maybe the brother been like, you know, respect for standing up for, to Batgirl. But kissing him? Are you being serious? And why, oh, I don't know. Just like the Batgirl character, Babs Gordon would not do this. I could see, like, Steph Brown doing it because, I mean, <laughs> she's just sort of that, like, that spunky sort of I'm going to improv it as I go kind of thing, but not Babs. So, it, I don't know, this whole thing, and I've had time to cool off because it's been a month, but this whole thing kind of made me upset, really, because it just doesn't flow with the character. And it seems random that Ricky's somehow involved with the owls, though I do wonder whether he's involved or he was just sort of giving her an answer by scrawling on there. Uh, but, you know, it's not really explained. It's it's just a scene that we really could have done without. And then the issue, the issue would have been the same if we didn't have this entire scene and I would not have gone into a rage quit on my good friend Donovan. <laughs> Batgirl costing the homeless people, then offering money. 
Really? What's the point of that? And it's kind of random. Let me give you money. Really? Ugh. How weird that Mary spells dead. D-E-D. But somehow knows that friend is spelled F-R-I-E-N-D. Not F-R-E-N-D. Not likely. Consistency. If she can't spell dead, she's not going to be able to spell friend with the weird placing of the I and the E. How does Batgirl know the Talon's backstory but not her name? It's not like Mary told her any of that in the previous issue, nor did she know anything about the Talon. So where's this coming from, Simone? How is an owl still alive? Here I thought they all killed themselves. Why is this guy special? Does he know Wayne is Batman? And then, of course, he Parsons decides to kill himself. To whom was he talking? Why does he decide to kill himself when, really, it seems he has everything in order? He's got his leverage and everything. Doesn't make sense. I'm really surprised that Talon all of a sudden decides to kill Catwoman without blinking when Catwoman was the one who saved her. And then we've got Batgirl fighting Mary. Deja vu. Why does Batgirl want to know about the romantic rompings between Catwoman and Green Arrow? And when did that happen? Very strange. There's a panel when Catwoman is talking about taking and helping Mary, and both Batgirl and Catwoman are crying, and I have no idea why. It's like all of a sudden I flipped to Lifetime Movie Channel, and a feel-good movie is on. Two women have overcome some obstacle, and they're bonded. That That's not what... I mean, it can happen in a comic, but not in this particular issue. So weird. What is the plan for Mary? I do wonder, will we see her again? When the devil did she have time to scrawl that little rainbow on the floor? All good questions that I feel will never be answered. To be honest, I feel like this story does not find itself in a good place in this series. Had it happened sooner, perhaps it could have fit better. You know, in my opinion, annuals are supposed to be great stories that really highlight the character whose book it is. But this annual does not do that. You know, this is a team-up that doesn't really see much of a Batgirl team-up. I mean, if I were to count the pages that Batgirl is in it and either Mary or Catwoman, I feel like it's really weighted on the Catwoman-Mary side of it, not Batgirl. And it's just a team-up that really does not succeed in, in pleasing the reader. So, ugh, I, I would there, there could have been way better annual <laughs> topics for this particular book and and it kind of stinks because annuals should be really special five out of ten bats well on to birds of prey so let's see if this one does a better job of transitioning from one story to the next birds of prey number 13 swear by my eyes writer Dwayne Swarzynski pencil Romano Molinar inker Vicente Sefuentes and colorist Chris Sotomayor Yokohama, Japan. A tattooed and beefy man walks to a basement 1,000 feet below sea level with a package. He drops the package down a shaft 24 hours until detonation. In Gotham City, Katana is sent on a food run for the birds who are recovering from Ivy's poison because Batman apparently gave them an antidote. On the way, Katana is attacked by a group of ninjas and while she is able to hold her own, she is simply outnumbered. She loses her footing and falls from a building, landing in an alley, losing consciousness, and also losing her sword. Katana returns to the bird's hideout, and she wants to gather the team to find her soul sword right away because it is in the hands of the Dagger Clan. Donna says that they will help her once they undergo another cycle with the antidote, since they are in no condition to fight. Katana, of course, goes off on her own. 
Yokohama. A red-winged man has been watching the Dagger Clan gearing up for something big for weeks. Though he does not know what they are planning, he is only in it for the sabotage. This man's name is the Condor, and he fights them, and while they are able to adapt, he takes some of them down and steals a soul sword. Seventeen hours until detonation. Katana arrives at Haneda Airport and meets some members of the Decker clan in order to negotiate. She is drugged and later wakes up tied and hanging. The leader of the Decker clan states that they took the sword because he knew she would follow it to Japan. She is about to be killed when the rest of the birds burst in. Starling placed a tracker on Katana before she left. The team fights, but they are severely outnumbered. Dinah feels a strange buzzing in her blood, which is apparently familiar to her. They take one of the clan members as hostage and leave, 12 hours until detonation. Batgirl, Black Canary, and Katana hang outside a sushi bar as Starling interrogates the clan member by doing something freaky with his eye that Uncle Earl taught her. She finds out that the Condor took the sword. Just as Katana is about to burst in on the interrogation, Starling exits, telling them what she learned and that he was not lying because she knows when someone lies. Cue the evil guy smiling. Next, who is Condor? So clearly this is a story focused solely on Katana, which, you know, I think it's fine because if you want to, I think that you have the option of highlighting a particular character on a team, and that's really how you get to know them. The main issue I have with this is the fact that there's no transition from the previous Ivy-focused arc to this one, not to mention the several other storylines that seem to have threads that are dangling everywhere, and I'm sort of getting caught in them. The birds have been cured from the poison, though we don't see how, just that Batman helped. Ivy's nowhere to be found, though she must obviously still be alive if she has appeared in other Bat books since then. And of course the team again seems to act like a team, with only some of the many issues that they actually should be displaying. They just need some counseling, I think. So we focus on Katana and her past, which not much really seems revealed to be honest, and we're introducing a new character, Condor, who will most likely come onto the Birds of Prey team, picking the place of somebody else, which we can probably all guess. I'm surprised with both sides of uh, the stay or leave argument. Katana should think more carefully about jetting off while they are all still recuperating. I guess this really shows insight into the character and how much her husband and the soul sword means to her that she's not thinking clearly, but normally she's pretty good with tactics and 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 thinking through them sort of uh, but the team should be more supportive of her quest as well and if she's determined to go off they should have just gone off with her as well i did think it was happenstance when they just all of a sudden found her in that particular warehouse but i'm so glad that it was explained and there's like a flashback and even if you turn the pages back you can see starling with her hand on katana so thank you Swarzynski, for having that that minute detail come out. I do appreciate that. But you know, after 13 issues, you'd think this team would start resolving some of their problems and start working together, but it seems like each issue, maybe something's resolved, but something else pops up and it's just not working. And will this ever be resolved? There is a quote that Starling says, I believe. Bat Dame, I'm seeing what you mean by that whole blender thing. What does that mean? There are some, you know, there are things that Simone puts in her Batgirl title that I don't know what she means. And then there are some things that come out of these characters' mouths that I just, I have no idea. Like, none whatsoever. I mean, it could be like a double entendre and I'm just not getting it. It could be something really simple and I'm 
overcomplicating it, but I just no idea. I wonder how Strawing was able to take that clan member hostage. Uh, he is a rather large fellow, and it just seemed a little too easy that they were outnumbered, and then all of a sudden they grab somebody and they skedaddle. So I'm, I smell something a little foul. And then Dinah uh, is suddenly okay with Starling torturing this guy, even though she was upset with how Katana acted in the previous issue, i.e. stabbing... <laughs> Well, actually, it was more of a slash, I guess, uh, Poison Ivy. This is the third or the fourth time that we have had inconsistency on the issue of superhero ethics, especially with Dinah. This needs to be sorted out because it is pulling it, and it. Th I, I feel like this is not a detail. This is something that I think really surrounds this team, and it, it's going to be a characteristic of Dinah's identity as a team leader. Is she okay with violence or I guess sort of over violence or fatalities, lethal force, lethal force, we'll go with that, or is she not? I think this needs to be resolved, Mr. Swazinski. So the hostage clan member is smiling at the end with Ev's words that she can tell when someone is lying. So this seems like he is in fact lying, but I wonder if Ev is also lying. The wounds around his eyes are superficial at best and don't really seem like what would happen if she followed Uncle Earl's directions. Could she be involved in this at all? And I think, you know, we all have to analyze what she does now since we know that she is working for Amanda Waller. So perhaps the easy capture of this really hunking guy is because they're on the same team. So they knew that this was going to happen. I have no idea but it, it'll be interesting to start to really investigate what she does. So the issue was okay, but it could have been much better given the fact that it was spotlighting Katana, and I think it deserved to be. There's no transition from the previous arc to this one, and that's a weakness I think that we have seen with Swarzynski. That and Dinah's flip-flopping attitude concerning, as I said, lethal force, whether or not to, to do or not to do. I feel like this issue is practically a, well, I could see that coming, since Katana is supposed to join the League and will have her own series. So obviously with a new character in this issue, the likelihood is that Condor will replace Katana. But the big question is, will he be a worthwhile character? Will we care about him? Will he mesh well with the rest of the birds? So an okay issue, we'll see where it goes from here. It's going to be weird. I wonder if there's not going to be a transition to a new storyline in the next issue if, according to the annual of Batgirl, we've got a Talon, or the Talon, popping up in this book. So riddle me this. Are we ever going to wrap up any of the storylines that we've had <laughs> over the past year? Seven out of ten birds. Next up, we have World's Finest number 5, Three Midnights Far From Home. Writer Paul Levitz, framing sequences, penciler George Perez, inker Scott Kobush, Power Girl sequence, artist Jerry Ordway, Hunter's sequence, penciler Wes Craig, inker Sergei Lapointe, and colorist Hi-Fi. Cambridge, Massachusetts. Power Girl is inside a lab getting shot with a blaster, comparing that power with what she was shot with by Haku. She is still convinced that they will be going home soon. She then tells Hunters about a field trip she took to a project under the Alps, a super accelerator designed to expand physics knowledge of how the universe is built. 
Karen ended up making many research grants, so she basically gets a free tour. She ultimately is hoping that this technology will be able to explain other dimensions. An attractive doctor takes Karen on a private tour when she takes a deeper look at the device and an explosion, more like a boom tube, happens. She knocks out the doctor just as an apocalyptic robot attacks. She flies it up out of the tunnels and it explodes once her x-ray vision hits it, taking much of her clothing with it. After that story, Helena tells a story about her going to Boston Commons with a Take Back the Night rally. At the rally, Helena meets a girl who confuses her homeschooled comment for being homeschooled in college. As the rally goes on, a sniper on the roof is taking shots. No one gets shot before she finds a man on the roof, apparently with an axe to grind. Helena then returns to the rally. While the stories may be different, the two have their fun in their own ways and help people along the way. Next, Family Matters. Well, it, it, it's certainly an interesting way to test powers by shooting blasters at somebody. Aren't there better ways? And if Power Girl is being tested, why isn't Huntress when she has some pretty important questions involving her reactions to Hoku as well, like why the radiation didn't affect her and things like that. Now, two times in this issue, Karen's costumes are in rags. And if you're going to do that, why not just have the hole in the costume that everyone was upset about it, it going away with the new 52 anyways? Why this shtick? It seems a little inappropriate and unnecessary. You know, let's see how we can tear up Karen's costume this time. Is that going to be the theme of this all? And and I would really suggest reading a an article from Comic Vines contributing writer uh, Sarah Babs Lima that, that talks on this very point. And I certainly agree with her. You know, the hole in the costume, I'm not really a fan of it, of the original Power Girl. Uh, so I was fine with, you know, it being covered up in this one. But if you're going to rip her costumes to shreds, and it's like even worse. It's worth, a hole is one thing, but then you've got basically nothing on her body almost. And it happens two times. And it's happened two times in the previous arc. I mean, really? Why isn't she? I don't know. And, and it's funny because... <laughs> Helena actually brings up the fact that this happens. And then Karen just says, you know, it gives me an excuse to buy new clothes. Maybe you should buy something. Maybe we should get Mr. Fantastic to come over from the Marvel Universe and, and, and get you clothing that won't incinerate with everything. I also don't like that Karen is really made out to be a floozy. She hits on anyone and, and, and really gets physical with them in, in every sense of that word. This is really disconcerting given the fact that Helena is confused for a college student later on. So I'm really wondering how old these women are. What if they are in like 21-ish and they're all over, the, like this is the worst image ever. I mean, if they were 12-ish in the zero issue, then they could potentially be 18 or slightly older. So to have Karen going everywhere oh i don't know and it's really weird because this was normally the thing that helena would do but i i just oh the sniper in helen's story confuse or helena's story confuses me a bit especially since he tries to explain what he's doing it makes it seem like his motives are somehow misunderstood or helena has confused something and i really just don't get it I guess I would have preferred a law and order sort of confession as to why he was shooting. Because, well, guess what? I would like to know why he was shooting. This is just like not explain all of a sudden there's a take back the night rally, someone's shooting, and she takes him out. No explanation, really? 
This series is losing me because it still seems like the same old stuff. I mean, Karen's focused on getting home and Helen is trying to fit in with people and get to know this earth. And there are costumes being ripped and flirting words being said. Ugh. So I think with this issue, this is the last time I think that I'm going to review it. It was sort of on a trial basis anyways. And since they don't really... I mean, it's not <laughs> very Batgirl-oriented, and, you know, I do like Huntress, but it's just not working for me. Uh, but you know what? I, I will tell you, though, what I'll do is uh, I will still give ratings for them, just not in-depth reviews, and, and you can certainly find them elsewhere, but until it starts to wow me again, it's just not worth my time, and I don't think worth your time listening as well. Uh, this final issue that I will review is, is getting a 6 out of 10 shredded costumes. Similar to, I guess, what I will be doing, uh, Team 7, I told you that I'll be reading it, but uh, I will just give you ratings on it. Uh, team 7, number 1, Black Diamond Probability Mission 1, Black Ops. I'm going to give it 7 out of 10 Amanda Wallers. It was a pretty decent story. Um, I actually still somewhat recommend it. I don't know all the Gen characters, so those are harder to recognize than, say, Grifter or Donna, obviously, or, or her husband. But I am still interested in reading this and seeing how it connects to everything in the current timeline. Well, that is it for all of my reviews. Now on to Babs in the Tube. This is the segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film, and currently I'm watching the 1966 Batman TV series. Here we have episode 113, that's season 3, episode 19, Nora Clavicle and the Ladies' Crime Club. The air date was January 18th, 1968. Starring Adam West as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, Burt Ward as Dick Grayson slash Robin, Neil Hamilton as Commissioner Jim Gordon, Stafford Rep as Chief O'Hara, Alan Napier as Alfred Pennyworth, and of course, Yvonne Craig as Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl. Guest starring Barbara Rush as Nora Clavicle, June Wilkinson as Evelina, Inga Nielsen as Angelina, Byron Keith as Mayor Linseed, and Jean Byron as Mrs. Millie Linseed. Nora Clavicle is ostensibly a woman's rights spokesperson, but she is secretly a crime queen, exercising her influence over Mayor Linseed's wife and consequently Mayor Linseed. She has Commissioner Gordon, Chief O'Hara, and Batman and Robin all fired and replaced with women. Don't know how you fire Batman and Robin, but whatever. She then has her hench girl set a trap for the Caped Crusaders. When the newly appointed policewoman proved too concerned with her makeup to stop Nora's gang from robbing the bank, Batman and Robin decide to try their hand at catching the thieves. With Batgirl assisting, they trace the gang to a knitting company's warehouse where the heroes are captured and tied into a gruesome human Siamese knot. Most ridiculous scene ever, people. As the three crime fighters struggle to avoid strangulation, Nora unleashes mechanical mice that will explode at sunset so that she might collect on an insurance policy she has taken out on Gotham. Batman, of course, figures a way out of the Siamese knot. 
He then procures three flutes, with which, like masked Pied Pipers, the trio lead the mechanical mice safely out into the water of Gotham Harbor. This trick works, Batman cagely explains, because of a peculiar sound actuated mechanism in the mice. Nora and her gang are rounded up with a citizen's arrest by Gordon, O'Hara, and Alfred, after which Gotham City returns to normal operation. Some days later, Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara get a call from Penguin, where he asks them if they have ever heard of the Ligerian sleeping sickness. Well, little known fact, this is the second episode that doesn't feature a bat fight, and the first was in season one, A Death Worse Than Fate. Uh, so that was kind of interesting. Yeah, the human knot, oh my. It was a strange, strange scene. Uh, and then I... I was just thinking back then, like, really, you've got a female in between two males, and I just wonder what went on between scenes, because in my mind, it was like a very inappropriate Twister game. So I'm sure that uh, Burt Ward and Adam West and Yvonne Craig have stories or memories from that particular scene. Uh, then you have these female police officers that are portrayed as weak feminine creatures. Apparently the mayor can't make his dinner or wash his clothes. I mean, there should be bras burning everywhere after watching this episode is all I have to say. And actually from a, a fan on TV.com, uh, th I actually found this pretty interesting. I used to love Batman so much, but this episode has to be one of the most insulting, degrading, horribly sexist eps of any show I have ever seen. It makes it look like all women, aside from Batgirl, who is a pathetic fighter, are vain, only good for cooking and cleaning, God forbid a man do his own laundry and shopping, and scared of, I'm not, I only saw it once and never again. Who knew? Bob Crane was sexist. Uh, so this was kind of uh, an interesting quote. And, and I do, I mean, I think that it was all supposed to be taken in good fun, uh, but it really does seem like it was pulled from, well, I guess we're there, aren't we? The Silver Age in the 60s. And I mean, that's kind of how it was back then. But I don't know. It was sort of ridiculous. It was probably my least favorite episode of all of them. I, I didn't think it was that fun really i mean there were some weird funny moments um you know the toy mice following the three pied pipers that was kind of fun but it'd probably be like maybe the worst batman episode in the 1966 television series but it'd be interesting to hear what any of you had to say or have to say if you have in fact seen this episode it'd be great to hear comments from you on what you thought of it and you know how you're supposed to take it and things like that i mean i do understand i think it's supposed to be fun but i i don't know it's just like what i just remember that that police woman like putting on makeup while the the banking is going on and then a man runs up to her and messes up her lipstick and she freaks out about it and I'm like, what is this? But anyways, uh, check it out and, and let me know what you think. Well, I know everyone likes uh, Shipper Spotlight, but I'm taking a break this month because I, and this is, you know, I've looked inside my heart and I've realized that, uh, you know, my shipping has gotten slightly out of control so I just need to take a step back. I mean, in the middle of class, I will make a heart with my two hands and uh, put two students in that heart when they're not looking and ship them and just all sorts of things so I just need to take a step back so that my life can calm down and I stop shipping people in real life and then I will get back to it but remember you can send in shipping requests if you have particular couples that you want to 
take a gander at, then please do, please do. For my literature recommendation, I'm actually going to recommend Batman Hush. And this was written by Jeff Loeb and drawn by Jim Lee. And I know that some people do not like Batman Hush. Um, perhaps mainly, mainly because of the ending and sort of how it all uh, gets tied up, but actually, I I really absolutely loved it, and I sort of devoured it. Um, it'd be overwhelming for someone perhaps who does not have a lot of knowledge in Batman lore, just because you are thrown a lot of different villains and characters from Batman mythology. But I loved how it it I how they were kind of coming out of the woodwork and how they were all involved in everything and then Superman shows up and you've got really the first the first uh, romantic interactions between Catwoman and Batman and they're actually my my favorite Batman shippers between Selina and Batman and I thought that it was it was well done and really building up but the end is sort of uh, there are a couple reasons why I didn't like the ending but I really don't want to spoil in case you haven't read it but I will say that I didn't like the way it ended with Batman and Catwoman because everything that I, they had been through for like 11 issues and him saving her and really starting to trust her and then all of a sudden he's like I don't think I can be with you but there are some really like head turns and like double takes and, and bugged out eyes with some of the things that happened in this book and I I thoroughly enjoyed it I, I do again know that some people have, you know do not like it and there are some things that I think are a little too convenient the one thing won't spoil it again but just has to do with a back computer and a hidden message think it's a little convenient uh and then the end is just like whoa what am i supposed to do with this knowledge now but i i still if you're a batman fan and you would like to read everything you know batman i think that it is a worthwhile read well, that's it for Backroll to Oracle. Uh, remember, you can send any questions or comments to Backroll to Oracle at gmail.com. Continue to sign that petition to get Backroll Your One back into production. Remember that the next movie is going to be, well, there's a Superman movie on Slate, and then there's also going to be Flashpoint, which upsets me, but whatever. You can also like the page on Facebook, and of course you can follow Backroll to Oracle on Facebook and Twitter. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Thanks also to TV.com for the episode summary for Nora Clavicle and the Ladies Crime Club. And be sure to check out the website. I know that most of you probably get your episodes from iTunes, but actually I've been more consistent and diligent about putting news items up on the website, so be sure to bookmark that. Well, again, I hope that you had a happy Thanksgiving with, with friends and family. And I'm looking forward to December. And just uh, a heads up, I know you're probably wondering, well, what about this this Batgirl roundtable that you said you were going to have? And uh, I promise you it is coming out. It hasn't been recorded yet, but it's it's coming. So you can expect that hopefully in December. And then, of course, the December birthday of uh, Batgirl the Oracle is is coming up. It is coming up. But until then, you'll just have to wait, I suppose. Until then, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl!
love a happy ending, don't you?